Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but the idea of falling out of love is all around us. We see falling out of love in sports. On draft night, young professional athletes will publicly declare how much they love the city of the team that drafted them, only to demand a trade four years later. High school athletes will make a commitment to play for a certain college or university, only to take a sweeter offer down the road. College athletes will proudly don the regalia of the school that they've committed to as a red shirt, only to eventually enter the transfer portal on their way to greener pastures. College football fans will swear their allegiance to their hometown team, but after one more three and nine season, they'll finally say, I can't take it anymore. We see falling out of love not only in sports, we see falling out of love in politics. Every four years, the latest sure thing politician crests in popularity only to find himself kicked to the curb in the next electoral cycle amidst cries of kick the bums out. Now we see falling out of love in Hollywood. Nicolas Cage and Martin Scorsese were each married five times. Billy Bob Thornton has been married six times. Richard Pryor was married seven times. Mickey Rooney and Larry King were married eight times. Lana Turner and Elizabeth Taylor had eight husbands. Zsa Zsa Gabor had nine. We see falling out of love not only in sports and politics and Hollywood, we see it these days in nonsensical quotes that are pasted all over the internet and social media. We see things said like, falling in love is awfully simple, but falling out of love is simply awful. Or this, falling out of love is like losing weight. It's a lot easier putting it on than taking it off. Or this one, fall in love with someone, but don't fall out of love with yourself. Sadly, the idea of falling out of love is not restricted to worldly people and to worldly affairs. The idea of falling out of love, tragically, has crept into the church. We see it when people apostatize, or to use the more modern phrasing, fall away. We see it when people begin to show those otherwise undiscernible first steps of spiritual drift. We see it corporately when people church hop based on their felt needs. Which church offers the best programs for my kids? Uh, Which church provides me with the most interest to advance my own personal interests or my own business opportunities? Which church has the best sound system? Which church has the coolest pastor with the best hair and the skinniest jeans? And tragically, we see it in so-called Christian marriages, this idea of falling out of love. When men and women who claim the name of Jesus Christ decide that they've had enough, and so after an extended period of dishonoring God during their marriage... They put the exclamation point on their lack of love for the Lord by dissolving their marriage, inevitably relying upon some lame and unbiblical excuse like, we simply drifted apart, or we just weren't compatible, or God knows my heart. See, falling out of love is not just a worldly concept that leads to silly quotes and startling statistics. Falling out of love specifically losing one's love for the Lord Jesus Christ, can and does happen in the church. And when it does happen, it can and does have tragic consequences. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We're finally out of Revelation 1 after a few weeks up here. 
We're into Revelation 2, and we're going to encounter Jesus' letter to the first of the seven churches that he would ultimately address, that being the church at Ephesus, a church which had lost its first love. We're going to read the whole letter first, and then we'll unpack it verse by verse. Revelation 2, verse 1, God's word reads, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This morning, we are diving into sermon number four in this 10-part preaching series titled, Postcards from Patmos. And as you've heard from up here, the title of the series derives from these seven short letters or postcards, which Jesus some 60 years after his resurrection, some 60 years after his ascension, directed the apostle John to deliver to these seven specific churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. This was sometime in the mid-90s AD. And as we're going to see today, and in each of the remaining sermons in this series, in these postcards, which we see in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus gives his candid evaluation of the churches at Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, at Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. But these postcards are not only addressed to these seven churches in these seven cities. They are addressed to churches today in New York and Los Angeles, in Lincoln and Omaha, in Des Moines and Kansas City, in Crete and Seward and Raymond and Waverly and all the other cities I tried to memorize last week. In fact, these letters are addressed to all churches all over the world throughout the centuries. In last Sunday's message, we saw that was an exposition of Revelation 1, 9 through 20, and there we encountered the Apostle John's awe-inducing vision of the author of these postcards, the risen and glorified Christ. There we saw Jesus as he exists today, sitting at the right hand of the Father in glory. He's no longer the cuddly, cooing baby in the manger in Bethlehem. He is no longer meek and mild. He is no longer lowly in form or in state. Rather, the Jesus who speaks to his church, to his churches, in Revelation 2 and 3, the Jesus who rules and reigns and governs his church today is Christ, we saw, the preeminent one, Christ, the glorious one, and Christ, the revered one. So as we work our way through not just today's postcards, but the six after this, and as we go about our lives as Christians, please don't ever lose sight of the fact that this is Jesus as he exists today, in all of his majesty and in all of his glory. I also don't want you to lose sight of this, that Jesus loves this church 
Jesus loves the church, but Jesus loves this church, Indian Hills Community Church, more than all of us put together. Jesus loves the church so much that he died for it. Acts 20, 28 says he bought the church with his own blood. Jesus loves the church so much that he continues to build it, even though the gates of hell seek to prevail against it. Jesus loves the church so much that he continually stands in her midst, as we saw last time, tending to her by by means of faithful shepherds, feeding her with his word, caring for her, meeting her needs, and earnestly desiring her purity and her holiness. And as we're going to see this morning, Jesus loves the church so much that he is willing not only to commend her for when she does good, but to correct her when she goes astray and to command her to live faithfully for him. The title of this sermon this morning is Dear Ephesus. And it's titled that because the first of these seven postcards delivered to the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos was addressed to the church at Ephesus. What do we know about Ephesus? Well, I'm going to commend you to go find Pastor Gill's messages on, on this text from about five or six years ago. I think he preached three sermons on the text that I'm going to try to get into in one this morning. But there's so much rich content on the background of Ephesus that he lays out there. Well, what do we know about Ephesus? Well, geographically speaking, we know that Ephesus was a coastal city sitting on the Gulf of the Aegean Sea. It was a crucial port city that connected the, the western and eastern halves of the Roman Empire. Ephesus was no small port city, though. Uh, It was no one-dock village. Rather, it was a major metropolis with well over a quarter million people living here at this time. It was a city that was having a major impact on commerce in this part of the world at that time. Now, culturally speaking, Ephesus, it was not only this major commercial center. Culturally, it was a social melting pot. People from all parts of the then-known world were settling in on Ephesus. It would be like West Lincoln multiplied many, many, many times over. Religiously speaking, Ephesus had a very vibrant spiritual life. It was a very, you could say, religious city. But as we know, just saying that something or just saying that someone is religious or spiritual is not always a good thing. In fact, most of the religious and spiritual activity that existed in Ephesus at this time was offensive to the God of the Bible. See, Ephesus was a hotbed of emperor worship. The Ephesian landscape was littered with shrines and altars that were devoted to the worship of Roman emperors. Ephesus was also home of of rank cult worship. It was a hub of worship of Artemis, Diana, who was superstitiously believed to be the goddess of fertility. In fact, her temple in Ephesus is considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But as beautiful as that temple would have been on the outside, all sorts of awful and disgusting practices were happening on the inside. We're talking prostitution and orgies and and other forms of debauchery that I shouldn't mention in this company. All this to say... Ephesus was a community that was ripe for the gospel. And it was Paul, actually, by way of his associates, Aquila and Priscilla, who first brought the gospel to Ephesus right around the year 52 AD. And after the gospel reached Ephesus, the Ephesian church was immensely blessed with Bible teachers extraordinaire who visited and ministered there. 
In addition to Paul, who, of course, as we know, wrote the letter to the Ephesians, Aquila and Priscilla ministered in this city, as did Apollos, who at Acts 18.24 refers to Apollos as an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures, as did Timothy, Paul's protege, as did Tychicus, and last but certainly not least, the apostle John himself ministered there. Church history records that John ministered at Ephesus for almost a quarter of a century, somewhere around the year 69 AD, all the way till right around 95 AD when he was finally banished and exiled to the Isle of Patmos. The point I'm trying to make is that the church at Ephesus was one with a rich spiritual heritage. Sound familiar? The church at Ephesus was uniquely positioned to witness and minister to the dark culture and increasingly darkening culture surrounding it. So with all of that as background, let's head back to our text, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. As I mentioned last time, the word angel in our English Bibles is simply a transliteration of the Greek word angelo. Angelo. And stripped down, that word itself need not conjure up images of chubby-cheeked, winged creatures. It need not conjure up images of Cupid or cherubim or seraphim. Instead, the word simply means messenger. Putting this word angelo or, or messenger in the context of Jesus addressing his churches there... I take this word, angel, as we see it in English, to be a reference to the primary earthly messengers in each of these seven individual churches. And who would these earthly messengers have been? Well, it would have been the men who were charged to lead these churches, to shepherd these churches, to pastor these churches. It was the pastors of these churches, as as Hebrews 13, 17 puts it, who had one day given account for how they shepherded the flock of God. It was the pastors of these churches, as James 3.1 notes, who would one day give an account for every word they uttered or declared in front of those flocks. It was the pastors of these churches who would be expected to be able to do something about any of the conditions that Jesus found displeasing. So I think a fair and and contextually appropriate rendering of these first words of of Revelation 2.1 would be to the pastor or, or messenger of the church in Ephesus. And then look at what comes next. It says, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. The one here, all caps, referred to here is the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, the text says, holds these seven stars in his right hand. We know from Revelation 1.20, we saw this last week, that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, which again I take to be the messengers or even pastors of these churches. So what Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus here is that he holds the leaders of these churches, these angels, these stars, these messengers, these pastors in his right hand, meaning they are in this place of security and protection as they preach his word, as they shepherd his people, as they protect his church. And then the Lord says, he walks among the seven golden lampstands. And that's, again, a reference to his churches. 
What's being said here is Jesus is continually present in and continually evaluating his churches. And as we're about to see here for the church at Ephesus, the evaluation he gives of this church being in their midst is threefold. First, he commends them for their orthodoxy and their diligence. Second, he criticizes the church for abandoning their first love. And third, he challenges the church to repent and return to the original high ground from which they had fallen. Let's start with Christ's words of commendation. As we're about to see, Jesus is going to commend this church in Ephesus both for what it does and for what it knows. If you're a note taker here this morning, simple three-point outline, this heading would be Christ's commendation. Christ's commendation. Look at verse two. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. The word for know here is significant. See, there are basically two verbs that could be used here to indicate that someone knows something. One would be gnosko. If you're a Spanish speaker, you would recognize conosco, like I know is, is the verb in Spanish. But gnosko speaks of imperfect knowledge that is progressively acquired. I'll say it again. Gnosko is imperfect knowledge that is progressively acquired. Like, I have imperfect knowledge of all the streets here in Lincoln. I'm making my way around. I figured, you know, Van Dorn, I think, runs east and west. I don't yet know the difference between the Nebraska Highway and the Cornhusker Highway. Normal is nothing normal, as I figure out that street. I have imperfect knowledge being progressively acquired. I have imperfect knowledge of Husker football. I have imperfect knowledge, telling the truth now, of the family trees of each of the members here at Indian Hills and how they all relate to each other. I also would have imperfect knowledge, meaning zero knowledge, of astrophysics. But if, if I were a different person with a different type of brain, theoretically, I could progressively acquire knowledge in this field. That's the idea of gnosko, imperfect knowledge being progressively acquired. The other Greek verb for knowing something is oida. You can just write down O-I-D-A, oida. And that reflects full, complete, comprehensive knowledge of a subject. Total mastery of a topic with no further room for growth or for knowledge. That's the word oida that Christ uses here as he, he talks about the Ephesian church. Christ isn't growing in his grasp of his knowledge of the Ephesian church. He isn't acquiring more information about the Ephesian church. He isn't developing in his understanding of the Ephesian church. Rather, he already has absolute knowledge of this church and the situation it finds itself in. And that makes perfect sense, considering, as we saw last time, that he is ever-present in their midst as their omniscient creator. And what is it that he knows? He says in verse 2, I know your deeds. Christ here is commending the Ephesian church because it is a church that's marked by godly labors and service. To paraphrase, what Christ is saying here is, you have done the right sorts of things. You have been fruitful. You have been dutiful in, in completing the tasks that are set before you. I know your deeds. Next, he says he knows the toil of the church at Ephesus. Now, the word toil here, kapon, connotes working to the point of perspiration. 
It means to labor to the point of exhaustion. It carries the idea of, of weariness resulting from hard work. A modern English way of saying this would be working your fingers to the bone. The Ephesians, in their labor and their service to the Lord, were toiling in their service to Christ to the point of exhaustion. They weren't lazy. They weren't indifferent. They weren't mailing it in. This wasn't a church that was full of sideline sitters or spectators. Rather, this was a church that was full of laborers. They understood, as Ephesians 2.10 puts it, that they were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so they were happy to be expended for Christ's sake. So he knows their deeds. He knows their toil. Next it says, he knows their perseverance. That word for perseverance is hupomene, which literally means to remain under. Or you could even say to bear up under pressure. And earlier in its history, we know from scripture that the Ephesian church had been loaded down with various difficulties and trials and negative circumstances. If we were to look at Acts 19, we'd see that the Ephesian was bore down. They were being bore down upon in its earliest days. We see this in Paul's interaction with disbelieving Jews in Acts 19.9, where it says that that group of early Jews were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way. We also see this in Paul's interactions with the sons of Sceva, who were attempting to trade on the name of our Lord. That's in Acts 19, 13 through 16. We also see this in Paul's interactions with a mob of craftsmen who were aroused by Demetrius, the silversmith, when they saw their cottage industry of crafting idols that were dedicated to Artemis suddenly taking a nosedive. Well, in the decades that followed, the Ephesian church apparently was now facing additional pressures to cave and to compromise. But according to this text, they were bearing up under the weight of it all. They were persevering. And that thought is developed further in verse 3, where Jesus says, And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. In other words, they were keeping their hands to the plow. There were no days off in terms of service to Christ. They were not giving up. Ephesus was a church, as Philippians 3.14 puts it, that was pressing on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Ephesus was a church, as Hebrews 12.1 and 2 states, that with endurance was running the race that was set before them, fixing their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. And note the motivation for their deeds, for their toil, and their perseverance. It's right there in verse 3. You have perseverance, you have endured for my name's sake. They were toiling in the work of the gospel for the sake of the name of the Lord. They weren't doing this for for self. They were doing this for their Savior. And now this Ephesian church's selfless, Christ-honoring labors were being commended by the Lord himself. Is this an encouragement to you? I hope it is. I hope it encourages you to know, as this Ephesian church could know, that the exalted and glorified Christ, though he now sits at the right hand of the Father, he knows how many meals you've prepared. He knows how many lessons you've taught. He knows how many gospel tracts you've distributed. 
He knows how many visitors you've greeted. He knows how many hours you've logged in. He knows how many prayers you've prayed. He knows how many sermons you've listened to. And he knows how many sermons you've preached. He knows it all. And he sees it all. Know that if you are a follower of Christ here this morning, your day of commendation is coming. Know that that on that day is coming in which if you labor for the Lord as this Ephesian church was laboring for him, you will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Know that as 1 Corinthians 15.58 says, you'll get this commendation if you are steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor, toil, kapos in the Lord is not in vain. As we're about to see, though, Christ not only commends the Ephesian church for its works, for its deeds, he also commends this church for its commitment to sound doctrine, its commitment to spiritual discernment. Take a look at the second half of verse 2, which I jumped over just now. He says, and that. So he knows their deeds and their toil and their perseverance. And then it says, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. See, the church at Ephesus was not only a hard-working church, it was a church that had a sense of right doctrine. It was orthodox in its beliefs. This was a church, as Paul would put it in Ephesians 4.14, that was not being tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the craftiness of deceitful scheming. Rather, this church had an unwavering commitment to the truth. This church recognized the corrupting influence that sin has when it is introduced to the church. This church recognized, as Galatians 5.9 puts it, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. This was a church that recognized the difference between light and darkness and recognized that the two shall not mix. And this was a church, as the text tells us, that could not tolerate evil men. And in the city of Ephesus, there were plenty of opportunities for evil to creep into this church. Because in this important port city, all sorts of people were coming and going. As is true in any large city with a transient population, there were many interesting characters passing through week by week. This included a group of itinerant frauds who were apparently masquerading as apostles as they tried to inject themselves into the community of faith here in Ephesus. Now from what we can gather through study these self-styled apostles were antinomian in their theology, meaning these false teachers were saying that you could call yourself a Christian but still live however you wanted. But the Ephesian church, they weren't falling for it. They weren't falling for so-called carnal Christianity that was being promoted by these so-called apostles. And why? Well, because they had been well-taught, well-taught by Paul, and Timothy, and Priscilla, and Aquila, and Apollos, and by John himself. Not only was the Ephesian church well taught, though, they had long ago been forewarned that such false teachers would arise in this very church. In fact, flip with me over to Acts chapter 20, where we see a warning given many generations before, many decades before, to the Ephesian church. Look at Acts 20. 
starting in verse 28. Acts 20, 28. This is Paul addressing the Ephesian elders before he prepares to depart them. It's his farewell address many decades prior. And it says this. He says this. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. Paul here was telling the Ephesian elders, we can flip back to Revelation 2, decades before the Lord addresses the church in Revelation 2, that a future day would come when there would be false teachers who would attempt to infiltrate their flock. And now, some 30 years later, those false teachers had arrived. And this well-taught, well-trained, well-versed Ephesian church, as we see in, in verse 2 of Revelation 2 here, had tested those, it says, who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. In other words, these discerning Ephesians had penetrated the disguise of those who sought to deceive them and exposed them as the liars that they truly were. We see the Ephesian church's spiritual discernment further expressed. If you drop down to verse 6 of Revelation 2, we're kind of leaping ahead. We'll work our way back through the rest of it in a second. But look at Revelation 2, 6 to see more of this spiritual discernment here in Ephesus. He says, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So in addition for commending this church for exposing the evil of the so-called apostles in verse 2, Christ here in verse 6 is commending the church because they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which it says Christ also hates. Who were the Nicolaitans? And why did Christ hate their works? Well, they were a group like the the false apostles mentioned in verse 2 who were attempting to introduce a a libertine, devil-may-care sort of attitude into this early church. We're going to study this group in two weeks, actually, as we study the postcard to Pergamum, But for now, what you need to know about the Nicolaitans is that they were a group that was practicing idolatry, practicing immorality, and they were doing all of this under the banner of spiritual liberty. They were a group, as the early church father Irenaeus said, who lived lives of unrestrained indulgence. The Nicolaitans, according to another early church father, Clement of Alexandria, were people who abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats. The Ephesian church, this discerning church, rejected the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And not only that, it says they hated their aberrant teachings. And they hated the Nicolaitans' false teachings because, as the text said, Christ himself hated those teachings. There's a simple and straightforward lesson for us this morning as we engage with this text, and it's this. There is no place... In the word of God, we will find God condoning, dismissing, or permitting sin of any sort. There's no place in scripture where we see God treating sin lightly. 
There's no place in the Bible where God gives his people license to indulge in their basest desires under the banner of so-called faith. See, there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. There's no such thing as a fornicating Christian. There's no such thing as a sleeping with his girlfriend Christian. There's no such thing as a sleeping with her boyfriend Christian. There's no such thing as an adulterous Christian or a homosexual Christian or a drunkard Christian or a lying Christian or a thieving Christian or a covetous Christian or a reviling Christian. It is an offense to the gospel when anyone caves to the cries of the culture by attempting to qualify or redefine their so-called Christian faith by the very sin for which Christ died. Sin is always lawlessness. Sin is always a gross offense to a holy God. When Christ offered himself up on the cross, he did not do so in order that his followers would run back into the world and toward worldliness, living however they pleased, engaging in spiritual harlotry. Instead, Christ died a sacrificial, atoning death to save us, to redeem us, and to make us new. The call in our life now is to walk worthy, not to wallow in the filth from which he saved us. The Ephesians' response, both to these false apostles in verse 2 and to the Nicolaitans in verse 6, was encouraging. Ephesus was a sound church, doctrinally speaking. Ephesus was a discerning church. But as we see, and as we turn to verse 4, we see that beneath the surface, the church at Ephesus was hiding a significant flaw. Look at what it says. Verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. If you're still paying attention, if you're taking notes, heading number two is Christ's criticism. Christ's criticism. The fatal flaw that dogged the Ephesian church, notwithstanding their doctrinal purity and their doctrinal fidelity, was that they had left their first love. They had abandoned the love they had at first. They had, you could say, fallen out of love. See, nearly four decades had passed between the early days of this church under the leadership of Paul's ministry and the time that they would have received this letter from Christ through John in the mid-90s AD. And over those four decades, this church's passion for Christ apparently had cooled. The church's familiarity with sound teaching, this church's commitment to orthodoxy, this church's zeal for excluding frauds and imposters, this church's penchant for hunting heretics, had left no room for love in the church. This was not an issue of lack of faith in Christ, nor was it an issue of submitting to Christ's lordship. Rather, their love for the Lord had simply grown cold. But how? What does it mean that this Ephesian church had, had left its first love? 
Well, a clue would be found in Matthew 22, 36 through 39. You know the passages. It's those passages where Jesus gives his followers those two primary love-based commandments that all Christians are called to carry out. That you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and all your soul and all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In Ephesus, apparently, there was a cooling off in both respects. First and foremost, there was a cooling off in in their love for the Lord, for, for God. Sure, they were working hard physically. Sure, they were well versed theologically. They were, in today's context, equally able to meticulously vacuum the worship center and debate doctrine. But their affections for God had chilled their spiritual discernment had degenerated to a place of calloused piety. Their joyful works of service had devolved into dry duties. One of my favorite old hymns is Come Thou Fount. And in that third stanza, it says, O to grace how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter Bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's what's going on here at the church at Ephesus. They had wandering hearts. They had drifting hearts. They were prone to leave, in the words of the hymn, the God they loved. But that same hymn then continues, here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Those would have been fit words for the Ephesians. They needed to have their hearts rekindled and set ablaze and sealed for the Lord's courts above. It wasn't just love for God, though, that had waned in this Ephesian church. So had their love for one another. As their personal love for the Lord had cooled, the church at Ephesus was experiencing this corresponding lack of love among believers. They likely knew the words of Jesus in John 13, 34, where he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. But Jesus' words had become just words to them. They had, in a real sense, tuned the Lord out. The Ephesian church had forsaken its first love. Yes, they were toiling and serving and sweating, Yes, they were studying and correcting and rebuking. But they were no longer loving God or loving one another. And that's a potentially dangerous, if not devastating, mix. I want you to hear this, church, and I want you to know I say this in love. If you are able to pin the tail on the covenant theologian, but you haven't shared the gospel in decades, that's a problem. If you are able to rattle off five errors associated with progressive dispensationalism, yet you are no longer loving your wife as Christ loved the church and living with her in an understanding way, that's a problem. If you're able to talk to a lot of other people about your theological hobby horses, but you aren't talking with God regularly, communing with him dependently through prayer as you read his word, that's a problem. One of the greatest dangers facing any 
Bible-teaching churches, including ours, and I might even say especially ours, is that it runs the risk of becoming like the Ephesian church, a church that is focused on busyness and service and work, a church that is focused on spiritual discernment and theological knowledge, but a church that has lost its first love. The question I'm about to ask I can't ask of Indian Hills Community Church the institution because our church, like any church, is comprised of its people, so I need to turn the question on you. Have you left your first love? Have you abandoned your first love? Has your love for Jesus Christ, your Savior, run cold? There's no one-size-fits-all diagnostic that applies to every Christian. I, I grant that. But there are certain traits that are common to Christians who have abandoned their first love. As I lay these out for you, I'd like you to honestly assess which one or which ones of these might describe you. I have eight of them. Save some space on your paper. Number one you no longer have a strong desire to spend time with God specifically in his word. His words have to become just words to you. Number two, your times of private prayer and worship have withered, perhaps even to the point of being non-existent. You feel like you're hitting a wall, or in his case, you're hitting a ceiling. Number three, your times of corporate worship, when you gather with God's people, have dried up. On Sunday mornings, you're merely mouthing the words that are put up on the screens. You're doodling or daydreaming or or dozing when the sermon's being preached. Number four, you find yourself craving the things of the world more than you do the things of God. It's shown in your weekly screen time report. It's shown by your bank account. It's shown by your browsing history. Number five, you talk more about the things of the world than you do the things of God. Sports scores more than sanctification. Hobbies more than holiness. Weather more than weightier eternal matters. Number six, you find yourself increasingly justifying your disobedience by pridefully measuring yourself horizontally against other sinners rather than humbly measuring yourself against a holy God and his righteous standards. Number seven, you find yourself becoming more harsh, more judgmental, more critical, more angry toward others, even those in the body of Christ. And number eight, and last, you find yourself becoming more greedy or selfish with your time, your talent, and your treasure. If any, or many, of those describe you, you, we, may just be like the people who made up the Ephesian church. Theologically, you're straight as an arrow. Practically, you're laboring diligently for the Lord. But honestly, you've lost your first love. So what? So what if that describes you? What if your love has grown cold? What if you have abandoned the love you had at first? What what are you to do? 
Well, to get the answer to that question, we turn to the next words of Christ here in his postcard to Ephesus in verse 5. Revelation 2.5 says, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. If you're a note taker, that's our third point this morning, Christ's command. We've seen Jesus commend the church at Ephesus for their spirit of service and their commitment to sound doctrine. We've seen Jesus criticize the church for having left their first love. Now in verse 5, he issues his first command in this postcard, remember. Remember from where you have fallen. And then he says, and repent and do the deeds you did at first. If you have abandoned your first love, if you're feeling a sense of conviction here this morning, you have here your charge. You're called to remember. Remember and repent. Let's start with remember. What does that mean? Well, there are at least two aspects to this term. First, it means to remember what God through Christ has accomplished for you. It means remembering that you weren't born a Christian. You weren't born a good person, even if you were born into Indian Hills Community Church. No, you were born, as I was born, depraved and wicked and dead in your trespasses and sins. And it means remembering that though you could never earn it, and though you and I certainly didn't deserve it, God saw fit to rescue your soul and mine from eternal damnation and torment. I hope that's not old news or becoming old news to any of us here this morning. Titus 3, 4 through 7. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If you've experienced any sort of cooling off of your love and devotion to Christ, that would be an amazing section of scripture to memorize. And not only to memorize, but to meditate upon as those truths from God's word are running through your mind constantly, day by day, as kindling for your soul. I've mentioned that there are at least two aspects of remembering. The first is remembering what God through Christ has accomplished for you. The second is simply remembering those days where your affections for Christ burned more passionately. You remember those days. I remember those days, right? Those first days of being a Christian. Soon after you had moved from becoming a spiritual orphan to an adopted son. Soon after you realized you were no longer a a dead sinner, but now a saint in Christ. Soon after you realize that you are no longer an enemy of God, but now a child of God, your heart felt full. You were grateful. You were thankful. You felt free. And what did you do? 
in those early days, you began burning all those bridges that led back to the world from which you came. You started throwing out the things that you didn't want to look at anymore. You started pouring down the drain the things you didn't want to drink anymore. You started canceling the subscriptions to the things you didn't want to see anymore. You started ditching all the bad influences in your life that you didn't want to be around anymore. And you started reading God's word. You were fervent in prayer. You started reading good Christian books and spending more time with Christian friends. You had joy inexpressible. You would have said like Asaph in Psalm 73, verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? If your love has grown cold, if you've abandoned the love you had at first, you need to remember those days. And you need to reclaim that sense of love for Jesus Christ, that childlike faith that you once had. And what about repentance? It's a twofold command remember and repent. To repent means to make a clean break with your present manner of life. To radically reorient your life with God's help because you're a spirit-indwelt follower of Christ if you've believed in him for salvation. And doing so in a manner that is honoring and pleasing to the Lord. For the Ephesian church, this meant it needed to break its cycle of cold and mechanical and dry service to the Lord and instead reestablish its old habits of loving devotion and service that they had since forsaken. If your love for Christ has cooled, my call on you on the authority of God's word is not merely to feel guilty, to not stand behind the fig leaf of good intentions. Instead, run. Run to the one who has saved you. Cry out to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Call upon the mediator between you and God the Father and confess your coldness to him. Ask him for his grace to warm you up. Repent of not loving the Lord as he deserves. Turn away from your partial or halfway devotion to him. If you're not willing to do that, if we as a church aren't willing to do that, we have a problem. Look at the end of verse 5. Or else. Or else. I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. See, Christ isn't messing around when it comes to his church. As it relates to his bride, he doesn't mince words. And so he says here that if the church does not, will not repent, he will come and remove their lampstand from its place. Put another way, if they refuse to repent, they would cease to exist. Even if they had a comfortable facility, even if they had an otherwise rich legacy, even if they had an army of gifted teachers, even if they had a new, younger pastor. This loveless lampstand faced a real risk of having its wick snuffed out. This was a stern warning given to a church that had otherwise had so much going for it. And how did the church at Ephesus respond to Christ's warning here? The Bible itself does not teach us. 
but church history does. According to the writings of some of the early church fathers, the church at Ephesus initially flourished in the decades that followed John's writing of the book of Revelation, meaning there was apparently some sort of rekindling of their first love. But eventually, Christ did remove their lampstand, meaning whatever repentance they had first experienced, it wasn't real. We know this because there is no church in Ephesus today. This church doesn't exist. This church that was known as the church at Ephesus now sits in rubble, a mere artifact, under the shadow of the red and black and green flag, the crescent and star of the false Muslim religion. This once thriving and promising lampstand that had so much going for it in terms of its doctrinal fidelity and its spiritual service long ago had its lampstand removed. It's a sad ending for the Ephesian church, and it's a sober warning to all churches that we must not only be doctrinally pure and not only diligent in service, but devoted in our love for God and for one another. Well, we'll end our time this morning with the final verse of this postcard, verse 7, where it says, He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Note the plural word churches here, not the singular word church is being used here. And that underscores something that we've already noted, which is that Christ's words in this postcard and in other postcards were not merely to inform or warn the church at Ephesus, but all believers in all churches everywhere throughout church history. And then there's this second sentence, Verse 7, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The word overcomes here is the Greek verb nikao, N-I-K-A-O is the transliteration, nikao, and it, it can also be translated conquers, as we see it in the ESV translation. It's the word from which Nike, the shoe brand, gets its name. And who is him who overcomes? Well, the answer to that question is actually found in 1 John 5.5, where it's phrased in the form of a question. 1 John 5.5, who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The overcomer, the conqueror, is not some form of second-level or super-spiritual Christian. Rather, the overcomer is simply he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The conqueror is a Christian. And we Christians, as Romans 8.37 says, overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And to true Christians, the Lord gives this promise at the end of verse 7. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We see the tree of life mentioned, of course, in the opening verses of Genesis. And then we see the tree of life mentioned in the closing verses of Revelation. By referring to the tree of life here, what Jesus is doing is promising heaven to those who overcome, to those who conquer. Jesus here is saying that if you believe in me, if you follow me, if you heed my commandments, if you persevere to the end, you will be rescued from this perishing world and receive a home with me for eternity. And I just have to say, if you're here this morning and you have not 
trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. This postcard reference is an apt illustration to speak directly to you. You know, postcards and letters, they can get misaddressed, right? You can receive a postcard, think it's for you, but it's actually for someone else. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you haven't given your life to Christ, if you haven't trusted in his name, if you haven't believed in your heart that the Lord raised him from the dead, if you haven't turned everything over to him in repentance and faith, don't think that this postcard is written to you. You're here this morning and it's misaddressed. You don't need to be a cleaned up version of a sinner. Rather, what you need to do if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ is to trust in him, to bow your knee to him and say, I, I'm a wretch, I'm a sinner. I acknowledge my sin before you, a holy God, and I recognize that my works cannot get me to that holy God. Rather, I must trust in the finished and perfect work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Then we can start having a conversation about how this postcard applies to you. But short of that, friend, you have no hope. You must be reconciled to God through Christ by trusting in his name. I'd love, if you're here today and you're a little confused about that or wrestling with that, to chat with you in the South Lobby after this service is over. Well, as we place this postcard to the the church at Ephesus back over life in the body of Christ here at Indian Hills, I come back to the same question I asked at the beginning of this series a few weeks ago. And it's a question I promise you I will ask many times over until we get to the end of this series, and it's this. How are we doing? How are we doing? Are we a church that's full of diligent servants? I have no doubt that we are. Are we a church that is marked by its commitment to sound doctrine? Again, I have no doubt that we are. But again, this section of scripture teaches us that these are not the only things that are important to the Savior. He expects so much more of us. As we've seen today, he expects us to be a church that's marked by love. A love toward God and a love toward one another. Are we that church right now? Are we that church that's being set up to be that church in five years and 15 years and 53 more years? Join me in praying that Christ would make us, his people, all that he wants us to be. Diligent as ever, discerning as ever, but without losing sight of the importance to being devoted in our love for him and for one another. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth it contains, its timelessness, its perfection, its application, and even this morning, its conviction. God, I pray that you would continue to to do your work through the word at Indian Hills for many, many decades and generations to come, unless the Lord comes to get, get us first. I pray that teachers and preachers and leaders and pastors and shepherds and elders would be unwavering in their commitment to sound doctrine, to purity of doctrine, to truth. I pray that the whole body would be unwavering in their devotion to service and and deploying the gifts that you've given them to serve this body of believers. But I also pray that you would guard this body from drifting in their first love for you, Lord Jesus. Help us to be mindful, to always be attuned to making sure that we 
rekindle that first love that we had for you, our Father, but also to demonstrate that love to our fellow brother and sister in the Lord and to demonstrate that love by sharing the gospel with the lost. May we be a church that's found faithful, a church that's commended on the last day, and ultimately for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.